Welcome back to the final episode of this season and it has been such a fulfilling journey for me so far as I continue to seek answers from friends and strangers who are respective experts in their fields. I hope the conversations that we've been having has been beneficial for you. Our guest today is the minister who is behind the scrapping of mid-year exams for primary and secondary schools. And it was also during his term when the unfortunate incident at River Valley High School happened. And because of that, he has been a huge advocate of mental health for students and teachers. We are very, very humbled to have with us today in the studio, Minister for Education, Mr. Chan Chun Singh. Hi, Min Chan. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me on the podcast as well. You know, I have never thought that I would ever be able to sit down like that, cross leg and talk to a minister. It's okay. You buy me coffee more often, I can come along. Oh my goodness. I mean, I just heard that you've got a really packed schedule. So it's, I mean, I only have a really short time with you and I want to make it meaningful. And to be able to catch you is like, I think it's a dream for for the guys over here at the Zoda Pop, you know, because they know that I've always been very like vocal about what I think about education and all that. And they said, you know, you got to get uh, the minister on and talk to him. And I said, no, I don't want. I don't like him, you know. So I'm very honest. <laughs> with I said, I don't like him. You no, know, he's very serious and then he's very poised and then like so politically correct and like he's not going to be able to answer my questions. But having said that, you know, this whole podcast is about being open minded. And I tell myself if I don't have a conversation with you. If I don't ask, you know, and I'm just going to sit here and think and, and assume all these things about you, that's not fair, right? So I said, okay, guys, you know, let's see if they're going to like even bother with us, right? So they reached out to the team and, and you know, initially I was like, ah, they're not going to have time for us. You know, he's not going to make it, this and that. But lo and behold, here you are, like, <laughs> you know, giving me your time and attention. And I, and I really, really appreciate that because uh, education is something that I, I feel really strongly for. And when I did this poll on my uh, social media, it seems that my audience, you know, is also mm. very, very, um, very concerned about this topic because it's it's related to us and our kids, right? Uh, but before I go there, like, I just kind of want to ask you, how, how do you feel like, you know, have you ever always wanted to be a minister? No. Okay, so what, what was your ambition when you were young? I wanted to be a librarian. No way! Come I'm on. serious. I've always to, I've Why? told people this. Okay, it's very simple. I'm a very logical person. I like to read books when I was young. Okay. And I have a lot of books to read when I was young because my family is not that privileged. And I figured out since young, when I was young, that the library was one of the few places that you have aircon. Ah, ah. Then I figured okay. out that if you become a librarian, you can read books free of charge. Okay. And if you are a librarian, they even pay you to read books free mm -hmm. of charge. So I thought, why not? Mm. Aircon, free pay, free books to read. I wanted to be a librarian. Right. Yes. You ask many kids, huh? mm -hmm. very few of them will tell you that when I grow up, I want to be a minister. I hope more of them say so, so that I can retire one day. It's not cool, <laughs> uh, being minister. You know, It's not cool. You know why I say that? Uh. Because it's, it's really a thankless job. You know, you do, you do well. Uh. Uh. You should, you know. Mm -hmm. If you don't do well, uh, yeah, this minister is useless. Uh, you know? He's mm -hmm. like terrible, don't know what he's doing. Da, 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 you know? and this sounds like what some of the people say to my kids. You know? what, what do you mean? When they go to school, right? If they yeah. do well, ah, yeah, you're the minister, child, right? Surely you must do well, right? Yeah. And if they don't do well, then they get this, hey, you're the minister, minister child. child. How can you not, How can do, you not do well? Exactly. See? So that's why it's not cool. <laughs> like why, why should we want to grow up and be a minister? Oh, for me? I would like to see that, I hope to see that more people say that, well, we want to make Singapore 
succeed. Because actually it's very difficult for Singapore to succeed mm. and to even be an independent country. So I always have this dream, you know. Okay. I always ask myself that, hey, actually, yeah, we have been independent for 50 over years, right? 57 years. How long more can we continue this dream of ours? Mm. And I mean, this sounds quite serious and sounds quite cliche, right? But you really think about it. Uh, actually, not many countries our size in our geographical location have been around for very long, you know. Mm. And borders do change. And so I, from young, I've been always thinking, you know, what makes a country able to continue to survive and its people continue to grow and be happy and to fulfill their potential? Mm. And that has been something that has occupied me for quite a long while, I must w say. Was there like a figure who sort of got you thinking about like, you know, the country and the future and... Oh, yes, because uh, once I was uh, posted overseas and I worked overseas, you know, mm. so I was very proud of myself. You know, I'm the representative of my com my country and I'm, I'm here to uh, make friends and so mm. forth. Then one day I visited someone and he's like, where are you from? He's like, oh, I'm from Singapore. Then he's like, where's that place? Then suddenly, you know, you, you get this crestfallen thing like, how can you not know Singapore? Yeah, yeah. Then suddenly <laughs> you, I realised that Actually, maybe we have a quite a exaggerated sense of our place in the world, mm. which people don't share. Mm. Then I ask myself, okay, so how am I going to make sure that people don't look down on my country? People don't look at me and say like, where are you from? Mm. See, I've been to overseas uh, causes and I introduce myself. Oh, I'm, I'm from Singapore. And we get, sometimes we get comments like, huh? Which part of China is that? Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. so, so you so because of this then you realize that hey, actually we need to try very hard nah, to make a name for ourselves for people to respect us and for us to earn other people's respect because we do things uh, properly we do things meaningfully so not that easy mm. what qualities do you think we should have if we want to be a minister uh, well I think you need to have a heart for the people and the country you mm. must never love yourself more than you love the country and the people mm. and I think one more thing you know that you probably need which is um I was about to say that. Like thick skin. Yeah, That's thick skin, what yeah. I, I feel like, you you, you know, because, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm also a public figure, like you are, and, and in, in many ways, I feel like we we are subjected to the pressures of, yeah. you know, what people think of us and what mm. they say of us and the comments that they make on social media and all that. And for you, it's even harder because of a lot of the policies and it's at the national level, right? Mm. For us, it's just about whether you like my role or you don't like my role. And, and you know, if you don't like it, you can just switch channel. But, mm. you know, I can't like not like your policy and then I can't, I can't go anywhere else. So it's a lot harder for you. Mm. So speaking of policies, right, you, uh, you were the minister who decided that, you know, we're going to do away with the mid-year exams. Mm. I mean... How hard was it to do that? I mean, what were the challenges that you faced? I'm sure it wasn't an easy thing. Well, I will caveat that and, and share the following things uh, with a little story first. Okay. You know, when I be before I became the Minister for Education, right, I visited uh, many of the previous uh, Ministers for Education, my predecessors. Okay. I always remember what one of my predecessors told me. He says, you know, Chun Seng, when you are the Minister for Education, if anything good happened during your time, you must give thanks to your predecessors. And if anything bad happened after your time, please take responsibility. <laughs> well, you, you might laugh, you know, but actually, this is quite typical of what we do in public service because a lot of the things that we do takes a long time for us to see uh, 
results. If we have really succeeded, is when the child that we are helping, in 20 years' time, 30 years' time, when he or she has grown up, she can become independent, she can take care of herself and her family, and he or she can take care of someone else in the society, then we would have succeeded. Mm. So it's not how many people we need, we have helped in this generation that matters only. It is also how many people we don't need to help in the next generation because they are independent and can take care of themselves. Mm. So when you come to this thing about you know, having exams, the results won't be shown in the short term. It's actually in the long term. In the long term, do we have a culture where, where our people say that, yes, tests and exams are important, but tests and exams are just for me to assess where I am. Mm. Tests and exams will be always around in our life, but how we approach it is important. Mm. And when we have time, how do we make use of the time to try to learn more things? And mm. not just to keep polishing the grades and learning to perfect one or two things. And that's very important because my own personal belief, uh, even before I become the Minister for Education, is that, you know, for our country to survive, to be resilient, we need a diversity of strengths. Mm. And every child is unique, every child is important, every child has their own strengths. And our job, perhaps the most important job in the education system is to help our child realise his or her potential, rather mm. than to keep comparing him or her with somebody else, or have him or her live up to somebody else's image. So this mm. uh, scrapping of the exams is mm. probably the first step to... It is not the first step because we have actually tried that even before. We have removed some of the mid-year exams for some of the level. Mm. And we have seen positive results. Mm. And I always ask my teachers this, you know, when I visit them in the schools, I say that, you know, now that we have uh, removed the mid-year exam, what are you going to do with the time? Mm. I say, A, uh, you can pretend and say that, oh, I don't have mid-year exams, but then I have some other assessments. Uh, B, you can say that, oh, I don't have mid-year exams, so now I use the time to catch up with uh, the syllabus. Or mm. C, you say, that, oh, now that I don't have mid-year exams, I have time. I want to teach my children something that I have conviction in. Mm. And regardless of whether it's inside the so-called MOE syllabus or not, I believe these are important things that our children must know and I'm going to make a difference to their life. And I always encourage them to say that I'd like to see more of the teachers who answer me C. They do something because they believe in it. Mm. And that's really the role of the teachers because you ask ourselves, we ask ourselves, you know, in today's uh, internet-enabled world, if it's just the transmission of knowledge, all of us can go to the internet and read the same things, right? Mm. Then why do we need teachers? Mm. We need teachers because they are the ones who close up the last mile. They know our children best. Mm. They know how to, if you like, stretch our children when they can be stretched, mm. how to encourage them when they are down, and how to customise the curriculum to suit them and bring out the best in them. Mm. That's why we need teachers. That's why no matter how technologically enable our teaching system may be, we will always need teachers and good teachers who can work in partnership with the parents to bring out the best in every child. Mm. And that's really my, my, my aim, both as a father and as a minister for education. But how do you think we can achieve that when the class sizes are so big and then there's like only one teacher and she's got like also admin work. Some of them are mm. telling me that they've got admin work to do. Mm. Then the class sizes are so big. And then you talk about like every child is different, right? And, mm. and you know, being sensitive to that, you, you can't really achieve that if the class is so big, is it? Uh, in fact, actually today, we do not look at the so-called average class size. In fact, today, our practice in the school is that we always have uh, pull out classes for those with the higher needs. And our the average class size doesn't say anything. We use technology to scale up 
those classes that can be done uh, at, a, at a higher number. So for example, today with a lot of the internet-based learning, many people can access the curriculum on their own and then they can even do what we call adaptive learning or what some people call the gamification of learning. So each of the children, they stretch themselves according to a different level. Now, when more of our lessons can be done in that way, it actually frees up time for our teachers to then focus on what we call the higher needs students. So if, when we talk about average class size, it doesn't reflect actually the range of class sizes that we have from the one that we use the technology to enable us to teach even more people at the same time at a different pace with the other type of uh, smaller class sizes where the high need students really get the attention that they need and they deserve. So yeah. this one, you're probably talking about like the higher primary, uh, higher levels uh, children. Uh, no, actually it stretch, uh, stretches across all mm. the different levels. So I give you an example, maybe starting at some of the polytechnic level. Uh, Singapore Polytechnic is uh, very interesting. Even a couple of years before COVID, they embarked on this um, project to do away with physical lectures. In fact, they put more, most if not all their lectures onto the YouTube and internet platform. So it's not just a one-hour YouTube program, but they interact and the teachers collect the data mm -hmm. on what the students have understood or not understood. And by the time they come back to the classroom, they use the classroom time on collaboration to solve problems, to improve on the parts that they were weak at and to create new things. So it's a totally different model from what we used to imagine the classroom of the past, whereby you come in, you listen, and then the teacher is there just to transmit knowledge to you. Mm. In fact, I've always uh, shared with my teachers that if teaching is just the transmission of knowledge and learning is just the absorption of knowledge, then why can't we use the internet and why can't everybody do it on their own? But teaching and learning has to shift. Teaching is now more about facilitating the students to understand the topic in depth, search for the information, make sense of the different sources of information, come to their own conclusion, but most importantly, create new perspectives and new solutions. Mm. So that's what we want to see the education evolve. It's not just about rote memory, about remembering what people have done in the past, or what I call uh, understanding yesterday's solutions for yesterday's problem. Mm. But during my time in MT, uh, MTI and NTUC, I look at some of the frontier companies of how they uh, employ people, how they select people, and I found it very interesting. Very few of them will look at the grades, but they always look for people that can work with uh, foreign counterparts, mm. understand the world beyond Singapore. They look at people who dare to go and try and look for solutions mm. that don't exist yet before, but they want you to synthesize the information and come up with something new. So I thought that is an interesting insight that I've gotten when, during my times in NTUC and MTI. And that's why I want to bring it to MOE and say that, you know, when we go forward and prepare our children for the jobs of the future, we can't be thinking of the old models that we perhaps used to learn. Mm. And this is where perhaps as parents, sometimes we ourselves get a bit stressed out because we are looking at our children learn things that we have never learned before. Mm. But if we take a step back and think about it, surely our children must be learning things that we don't learn before. Otherwise, our children will be only at our level. Mm. And we, our job is to make sure that our children do even better than us in their own generation. Mm. So that's why there's this constant uh, challenge for us to keep moving forward. It comes with some stress, but it also comes with a lot of benefits if we do it well. I only have a child who's in primary school. So having like to sit through with her to go through the whole internet-based mm. uh, learning and all that, mm. it's something different for me. I, I, I feel like, why am I, you know, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to sit next to her? And then it's like, it's like my homework, you mm. know? 
And, and, and then I also challenge myself to think of it in another perspective, which is, this is the way it's going to go. Mm. And yes, it's uncomfortable for me, mm. but, you know, is it just me because I'm not used to it, mm. uh, complaining about mm. it? Or am I just looking at it in its, in, in its um, pure form? on whether this is beneficial for the child or not and whether this is uh, the way to go, mm. in fact, for how learning is going to take place. Yeah. Because now we can sit here and we can take a, a degree overseas mm. without even having to fly there or live mm. there. Mm. And and so, you know, this is the world that we are coming to and that sometimes it's just about putting aside our discomfort mm. or what we were not used to, mm. to, to adapt as well. And we are mm. adapting along with the child. Uh, but then th the, there's also this very real concern, right, about how whether or not technology is being used in classroom to sort of just um, like like how people use iPads, you know, mm. to distract their kids. Like right. is technology being used in that way mm. in the classroom? So actually you raise a few very good and important points. You see, the first thing is that when you accompany your child to look through that uh, home-based learning system, Actually, there are, there are two things that are happening. One is, of course, that particular subject, what she learned and so forth. But that, I think, is the more superficial learning. The more important thing is that you are actually helping her to be independent. Because one of these days, exactly like you suggest, when she comes out to work in the future, she will have to learn on the spot. Mm. Because we all know, you know the world is changing so fast. You can't front load all the education, all the knowledge that you think that will help them for the rest of their life. Mm. So throughout their life, they have to keep learning. And where do they learn? So in time to come, the learning model is that we don't ask the adults to go back to school. We bring the school to the adults. Mm. Actually, today we are doing this. You look at this podcast today, if it's going to be uh, beneficial, people will be listening to this when they are on the trains, on mm. the bus, when they are uh, having some downtime sometime, mm. somewhere. So the concept in future is that to enable our adults to learn anything anytime, anywhere. Mm, mm. And that requires quite a few mindset shifts. Yep. Um, first, I'm not going back to school, but I can always access the school on my devices. Mm. Number two, I must be able to be disciplined. I'm not going to have my teacher sitting there and tell me to learn. Yep. And I must try and do it myself. Number three, with or without exam, I want to learn because I want to improve. Mm. And I don't learn just because I want to pass an exam and get a certain certificate or grade. And in fact, um, many people have told us, including many people from LinkedIn, they are growing increasingly not interested in your overall degree, nor your diploma, as in the overall program. But they are very interested in what specific subject and topic, what specific projects have you done in a degree or a diploma? Because that actually gives them a sense of mm. the real relevance of your skills. Mm. And I'll just share this uh, interesting thing that NUS have done uh, recently they have provided this thing called an internship as a service. So they have these companies come to their portal, write down the requirements that they want from the intern, what kind of job skills they want and what kind of commitment. Then they match it to the students, the undergrads, uh, who may be during their term time or outside their term time looking for an internship opportunity. And they are just matching skills. Mm. So the companies didn't ask uh, what degree you do or what... Uh, subjects you do but they are very interested in what skills you have mm. and that's how i think the future will be so just now going back to the example where you were sit sitting with your uh, child trying to do this home-based learning actually the very important skill that she is learning is really how to learn on her own mm. and we always say this you know in going forward you have to learn unlearn relearn because the knowledge cycle is uh, 
so much faster. I remember you know, my mother would uh, work in the factory. She did two jobs when I was young, trying to support us. First, in the morning, she was a cleaner. Then in the evening, she was producing um, metal caps for the you know, chicken of essence bottle. Mm. We used to bring that home to, to do and we bend the aluminum uh, thing into a ring to make it into the bottle cap. She did that for 20-30 years. Same job, same mm. machine. But I don't think our children will be in this kind of uh, environment where mm. they can do the same job, uh, same machine. And if we look at the Fortune 500 companies, I mean, the average lifespan of a Fortune 500 company has probably dropped from 50 years to 15 years. And even within the 15 years, you look at companies like Apple, IBM, every few years, their entire product range has changed. Mm. And the people who are working there have to also keep pace with the change. So the most important skill I think that we can equip our children for the future is really how to learn and how to learn fast that will really give them a competitive advantage because mm. we can never equip them with everything that they need up front. Mm. And we don't want to end up in a situation where I used to say in NTUC, you know, we spend 15 years of our life or 20 years of our life preparing the first job, preparing for the first job. Then we forget to upgrade ourselves for the next mm. <laughs> five or 10 jobs that we might continue to do in uh, our lifetime. Mm. Because the chances of our children doing one job for their entire life I think that's going to be quite tough. Uh, quite mm. tough. I mean, I would really agree with you on this point about how we are not going to be able to know what jobs are going to be available yes. for them in the yeah. future and, and to, to try to to stuff them with all that now and prepare yeah. them for all that yeah. now, it's not going to really work. And mm. in fact, what we should be uh, doing for our children now is mm. to build character, to mm. build um, to build their resilience. You know, yes. to let them know how to seek information, ask yes. for help, how mm. to uh, negotiate conflict. You know, mm. how to communicate their ideas and mm. communicate with people. But mm. how do you think the schools are enabling this for now? Because mm. it's just it just it just does seem like the children mm. are going to school, sitting in the classroom, going through the subjects mm. and. And, and if you are going through the subjects and then going home, doing your homework, doing your spelling and tingxi and all that, how are you building character or, or resilience mm. or creativity for that matter? The fundamental of that is curiosity. Mm -hmm. Do we encourage our children to be curious or do we just want them to give the right answers? I always uh, admire the Israeli uh, education system. Mm. They focus on encouraging their children to ask the right questions before they even talk about finding the right answers. Whereas I think sometimes we as Asian parents are very concerned about whether our children give the right answers. So there's always this joke that says that, you know, when our children come back from school, what's the first question we ask them? Mm. Do we ask them, hey, today what did your teacher ask you? What answers did you give? Or do we ask them, today what did you ask your teachers? Mm. Uh, what, you know, have you explored your environment? Have you found something interesting? So I think we need to keep up that curiosity in our children. I, I think this is what like me and mm. many of the parents in my yeah. group will also believe in, you know. Yeah. But then they struggle with it in, in, in the actual system because yeah. like in the classrooms, it's just like everyone has to behave. Everybody is, you know, then it's yeah. very hard for them to be curious because, yeah. you know, some kids who are excessively curious, mm. they become like the bad egg, right? Because, ah, they're making too much noise. Yeah. And then there are some kids who are just a little bit too shy to do it. And and just the whole structure of school mm. doesn't really allow children to be curious. Ah. So this is where we need the teachers to have an eye for the children. Curiosity 
show means that you know whether the child has a keen sense of observation mm. and a keen sense to inquire. You see something, then you ask, why is it like that? Mm. Right? Uh, why is it not like that? Or how how does this thing happen? Mm. Why does it happen the other way around? You know, it's like another common example I always ask. Uh, you know, today our children are very fortunate. Many of them get to travel overseas. But then I always ask them that when you go overseas, uh, what do you see? Uh. Right? When I was traveling with my kids and I, when I still travel with my kids, we used to play this game. Mm. Whenever we arrive at a new place and then on our way to the hotel or to the next destination, I say, why don't you look out the window and tell me three things you think that are that is that are similar to Singapore and three things that are different. Then I ask my my kids, why do you think the three things are different? Mm-hmm. Right? From the way they drive to the way they walk to the way they dress. But it is to hone in our children that keen sense of observations and inquiry. Mm. And to always ask, why are people similar as us? Or why are people different from us? And then it starts to spark their curiosity and want a deeper understanding of why people are like that. Because it's an important skill set. When they finally grow up, they will have to work with their counterparts from overseas. Yes, yes. They will meet uh, foreign students who are here or they may go for overseas and work. And they cannot always assume that everyone is like Singaporeans mm. and every place is like Singapore. In fact, Singapore is the, the odd one out, if you like. We mm. like to distinguish ourselves by the way we do things perhaps a bit differently uh, compared to many other people. Mm. And that's how we create value for ourselves. So our children must have this sense of inquiry as they grow up. Without which, then they will just be like anybody else, right? So, so what I'm hearing from you is that actually a lot of it is, <clears throat> is, is actually the responsibility is on the parents. Uh, it's a parent and teacher's partnership. Yeah. Because, you know, they spend maybe six hours, ten hours in school, mm. but they spend uh, the rest of the 24 hours outside school. So this partnership between the parents and the teachers are very important. You can't have... It, on one and not the other. You can't have the teacher say, hey, all of you sit down, keep quiet, don't ask questions. Yeah. And then you go home and then the, te- the, the parents start saying, hey, what question have you asked and things like that. Yeah. Or you can't have it the other way around. The teacher is like, oh, why don't you look at this flower, this plant and think of this and then go back to the, the parents ask, what answers did you give? Do you give the correct answers? Yes. Then the, our, ch- our children will be very confused, right? Yes. As to what is the kind of uh, mental models that we want them to have. Which is why in MOE, we... Nowadays, I, I always say that, you know, in NIE, our National Institute of Education, where we train our teachers, mm. we can't just teach our teachers how to teach and teach well. Mm. Uh, that is basic 101. Yes. But we also need to teach our uh, teachers how to work with the parents so that they can form this partnership. Mm. Because times have really changed, you see. Mm. Today, I think the parents have much higher expectations of what the teacher should be. And they are also much more uh, inquisitive about how to help their children to do well. It wasn't during probably our time. We don't have this uh, parents-teachers meeting. In fact, my mother told me, if I ever have to turn up in school, you are dead. (laughs) (laughs) So we're like, okay, okay, I know what you mean. If you flung your exams, you are dead. Okay, so we know. So whereas today, uh, if the parents don't get a conversation with the teachers on the progress of their child and how they can help their child, uh, they find it very awkward. So today, our teachers spend a lot of time communicating with the parents and the parents all have very different expectations of what the teacher's role are and what they should do as parents in that partnership. But we need a good partnership in order to bring out the best in our, our children. So these mm. are, for the matter, these are also new skill sets that our teachers have to learn 
so they also have to go for skills future, if you like. You mean the existing cohort of teachers as well, not just new teachers? Yeah, just as, yes. Yeah. Because you see, helping our teachers to work with the parents, helping our teachers to acquire the skill sets to help in the social emotional uh, development of our children has become more and more important. Mm. You see, in the past, we focused a lot on academics. But today, I think we will agree that if we don't get the social-emotional foundations right, if we don't get the mental health issues right, we don't even have the foundation upon to build the academic success. Mm. right? And, it's, and we can just keep pumping our kids with the academic, but it's very fragile. But if, like what you suggested just now, if they have built up that emotional resilience, the ability to bounce back from failure, the ability to take hard knocks, then actually they will be able to learn much more throughout their life, mm. regardless of what grades they may have achieved or not achieved in the short term. So, you know, from what I hear about you, which I agree as well, because I always mm. see it as a partnership, you know, mm. school, and even with the greater society as well, right. school, parents, and the greater mm. society, you got to kind of like be in, tune, in line, you know, with yes. that intention. But then also there's the very real struggle. Like if you have a teacher, for mm. example, in mm. a school where they're encouraging you to think and this and that, but then parents are, they're too busy working because mm. they are trying to strive for a certain... Mm. Uh, uh, quality of life for example right. mm. and, and so they don't have time to you know work with the kids or even mm. to sit next with the, to, the, mm. to the child to go through all that mm. you know you mentioned just now going through all that teaching the child how to mm. learn but also I think it's that time that you're spending with the kid that, mm. that is also very valuable yes. it, it, it makes it sort of forces you in that sense to sit down and focus and be present with your child to go through that mm. so what I'm saying is to just that you know we have very real issues that right like mm. parents go to work and then they got to put their kid in school and then student care and this mm. and that and they don't have enough time mm. to to spend with them because it's like we are just all caught in this rat race mm. H- how do you think we can so, strike a balance so I think that a few things that we need to do mm. as a society, as mm. a community. Now, first, I think we must also not assume that just because we are parents, we are expert parents. Mm. I, uh, my wife always used to remind me, you know, when we first have our first kid, I say, you go to the, uh, the, the store to buy a pea plate, you know, the learner driver's plate. <laughs> say, you always put that uh, in front of yourself and, and just remind ourselves and be a bit humble and say that we are all learner parents. Yes, yes. We are not expert yet. Mm. Because as our child grows, uh, no matter what age they are, they are always our kids, our babies. Mm. And we ourselves are also trying to learn to relate to them mm. in their different stages of growth. Even as parents, uh, we are also learning. Mm. We also need to learn how to relate to our children at different stages of their development. Mm. And we also need to acquire skill sets. Mm. But you know, parents are just like all of us, we are a bit shy, you know, a bit shy to ask people, hey, actually, how do you talk to your kids uh, when they are teenagers? Or, you know, how do you talk to your kids on these difficult topics and whatnot? So this is why in MOE, we also try to do this, which is that we get a parent support group to come together. Mm. So it's a peer support group. It used to be that the parent support group support the, pa- the, the schools. Mm. But then we thought, why, why is it that the parent support groups are just supporting the school? Because the parent support group can also be a platform for the parents to share and then they discuss things in a safe environment. But does it become toxic and all become like competitive? Ah, and then so like that's why you need good moderators and you need positive role model. But you don't want to end up with a parent support group like, hey, what's your children's grade? Huh? Hey, what yeah, did yeah, your yeah. parents hey, which score? Tuition center do you which send? tuition You don't want to end up like that, right? Yeah. So that's why, but it's okay. I, I'm actually quite optimistic because in all the parent <laughs> support group, I can always find 
positive role models. Right, right. right. And you want the positive role models to be able to share some of these uh, positive, constructive practices, right? So actually, you're not encouraging that either. From what I'm hearing from you, right? Obviously, you're not encouraging that competitiveness of like, you know, which tuition center you're going to. Hey, did you, you know, uh, do this? No, I always tell the the parents this. I think it's not fair for us as parents to project our unfulfilled aspirations onto our poor kids. Mm. I mean, I, I just share with you my own personal story. Uh, when I first have my first child, and she was our only child for the first eight years of her life, and we felt the pressure because we felt that all our aspirations are superimposed onto her. Mm. And we get very uptight uh, whether she does well, uh, whether she did well or she didn't do well. Mm. Then we find that that's not very balanced, you know, and it's not very fair to her, and it's also not very good for us. Actually, what we need to do is to figure out what are her strengths and weaknesses and help her to realize her potential. So mm. my daughter, my eldest, uh, well, she's she enjoys uh, gymnastics, she enjoys dance. So I said, okay, that's her strengths, that's her interest. But it's not for me to impose my strengths on her or my interest on her. I like to do math. She might not like to do math as much as I like to do. So it's really to help our child find their own footing and not so much to compare her with somebody else because then she might be wondering like, do you want me as your child or are you only proud of me as your child because I fulfill some of your aspirations or some of your criteria? I don't think our children want to feel that. Mm. And already actually in the current environment, it's really very tough on them. Mm. I used to joke, you know, that people of our generation, we only get compared once a year, you know, during Chinese New Year, when you go and visit your relatives, right? Then people ask you, hey, what grades you score? Which school you go to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. So maybe one, only <laughs> once a year. But in today's uh, social media space, uh, unfortunately for our younger generation, they get compared every other moment. Mm. And it's very pressurizing. Actually, you know? sometimes it's also self-inflicted, isn't it? Yes. They, within themselves. No, because today, you see, you... Sometimes we forget that whatever we post, whatever we see on the post, they are not necessarily the norm, right? For example, uh, you and me probably will wake up sometimes the eye a bit bigger than the other one, the hand a bit messy, but we don't post those things, right? Mm. But actually, that's the norm. But we post our nicest self, the best food that we are enjoying, the best scenery we are seeing. But when we get this steady stream of these perfect images, then it might affect the self-esteem of our children and ourselves even as adults. Then we might be thinking, why am I not eating those good food, Mm. having such a good time? But what we forgot is that actually others post that because it is a rare moment. Because we are constantly chasing for the next exciting moment, Mm. right? The next highest level of likes (laughs) for Mm. our posts and so on and so forth. And that might inevitably cause a lot of unhealthy pressure in our children and our families. I think what happens also is that we don't see what are the you know the 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 obstacles that mm. the person had to overcome yes. to come to this point. You only yeah. see that success story. Yes. But you don't know how much the person has sort of given up or had to fall and, and pick themselves up yes. and learn their lessons in order to get there. Yes. And that's one thing that we we tend to only just see that beautiful sight and forget that because nobody talks about that part. Yes. So like when my daughter was doing gymnastics when she was young, it was a very good example. For her to execute one of those flawless uh, somersaults or what, she probably have uh, fallen many, quite many, many, many times. times before she finally got it right. 
but nobody posts the the kaplong <laughs> kaplong in the post and then finally you say voila this is the perfect uh, image right mm. so I think it's just that sometimes we get a artificial sense of what reality may be mm. and, uh, or rather a distorted sense of reality and that might not be healthy and that adds a lot of pressure to our children so that's why you know, for me as part of the education system uh, the progress of the education system uh, whether is it the teachers or the parents or the partnership we really need to spend much more time helping our children develop the social emotional foundations for them to even start talking about learning academic subjects or non-academic subjects. But in order for us to do that, right, talking about teachers and parents, we ourselves, we also have to be like, like emotionally yes. and socially like stable, isn't yes. it? Correct. Like if yes. we're also stressed up and, and like yeah. struggling to, you know, like make ends meet or we are comparing ourselves to yeah. other people, then yeah. obviously we're not going to be in the best position to be able to teach yeah. our children how to do that. And, and in this world, I think very often we, we always try to keep up with the Joneses as, as we say. Right, we always compare with other people, which is why I always remember what my grandmother always told, uh, uh, shared with me when we, when we were young. I mean, we don't come from a well-off family, so she always, uh, she always reminded us that, you know, in life, it's not just about how much you earn, right? It's also how you spend your money, how you take care of your fellow members of the families and your relatives or your circle of friends, you know. So it's not always about comparing with other people and then you feel a sense of... Um, perhaps you say success or achievement just because you have beaten somebody else in that comparison. But it's really about whether we can contribute meaningfully to other people's uh, life. And that, I think, is, is, is important. So mm. uh, yesterday, I was at Republic Poly uh, having a discussion with them. And the students were very intelligent. They raised a question because I asked them, how do you define success in 10 to 20 years' time? So some of them said, oh, I want a stable job, I want a financial security and so forth. Then a student started questioning himself. He said, oh, why is it that some families can earn $3,000, $5,000 and they are happy? Mm. Why is it that some families can earn $30,000 or $50,000 and they are still not happy? Mm. Then they, begin to, they began to deconstruct the thing and ask themselves, actually, what makes them happy? And many of them come to this conclusion. It's not just about the material things that they can buy vis-a-vis uh, -vis other people, but it's really whether they have a sense of contribution that they can make a difference to the people around them, right? Mm. And a lot of them concluded that, you know, if, if I just keep chasing all these material things, but if I neglected my family, then what's the, what's the point of it? I have some burning questions. I mean, burning issues. Lah. Mm. Okay, I mean, I don't want to turn this into a complaint session, but <laughs> you know, have some burning issues that I, I had because, I mean, I'm dealing with um, children at the primary mm. going stage and uh, like some of my listeners are also uh, having children of that stage. And and one of the questions that I keep hearing or one of the gripes that I had also, I have not, not past tense yet. Maybe after <laughs> I talk to you, I will it will be past tense, but I have is... <laughs> Is, is the school hours, right. right? It's like, why does school have to start so early? And then, you know, as one parent has summed it up so nicely, I think it's like, it's too rushed for breakfast, it's too late for lunch, and it's too early for dinner. Mm. So, you know, wh why does school have to start so early? Actually, different schools do start at different times. Mm. And there are very good reasons why the different schools choose to start at different times. Mm. You know, different families have different lifestyles and different preferences. Mm. So it's actually... Very, quite almost mission impossible to have a school start time that everybody can kind of uh, agree to. Uh, I'll be very frank. Uh, I've gone to some schools where the 
children come from more privileged backgrounds. And many of the parents will be asking, like, why do I have to send my school uh, kids uh, at 7.30? I, I go to work only at 9 o'clock and I, I rather them start at 8.30 and I, I go to office. Mm. But there's one group of parents. Then you have another group of parents like, uh, excuse me, I need to go to work uh, at Jurong by 8 o'clock. And if I don't get my kids out in time, then who's going to bring my kids to school and so forth? Mm. Then you, on the other end, a lot of people talk about the school start time, but very few people talk about the school end time. So some parents are also very conscious that uh, if you're going to start later, does it mean that they're going to end later? If they go and end later, does it mean that they have to take lunch in school? Does it mean that they have to go through school in the afternoon where it's going to be very hot and humid? Because in Singapore, you know, mm. once after 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, uh, you know, our environment without aircon can be rather quite hot and humid. Then some people will say that, oh, I'd rather have my uh, kids uh, uh, end school earlier because I have many other programs that uh, mm. I want my kids to go to. Mm. Whereas other parents will say that, actually, if you don't mind, uh, I have to work the whole day. Can you just end the school wherever you want to end the school? But can you provide me the after school mm. programs that can take care of my kids? Mm outside school hours so that they don't end up, end up as, as a latchkey kids. So you see, so actually the school uh, environment, the demands are quite varied. Mm. But what we have done is to allow different schools to make their own decisions in consultation with their teachers and also the parents. Mm. Because you don't forget, the teachers are also parents themselves. Yes, they themselves yes. also have to bring the kids to school. They themselves also have to go and fetch the kids yeah. after school sometimes. Yeah. So, we need to make sure that there are all these various considerations. So I don't think you can have a one-size-fits-all model. Mm. And there are also different parents with different uh, school-going children at different ages, mm. and they all have different uh, school start time. If today you look at some of the JCs and uh, poly and ITE students, oh, they have very uh, uh, different start time. Mm. When I went to Republic Poly, the year one started at 8.15, year two started at 8.45, the year three started at 9.15. Mm. Uh, that's partly because they want to decongest the mm. traffic patterns but there are also other reasons about when they went to end school because some of them may need to work after school as part-time people mm. and so they all have different needs so I think that's why when we uh, when we as parents advocate for a certain school start time I think we must consider not just our own needs but also that of the fellow other parents who might have quite different preferences from ours so in MOE we just have a simple rule Thou shall not start before 7.30. After that, <laughs> you're free to decide when you start and when you end. Yeah. And I must also share this with you. A lot of people talk about, oh, can we have four-day uh, school? Uh, mm -hmm. I have been to one school, Unity Secondary. They have a four-day uh, school week. On the fifth day, where the attendance is best, there's no lessons. There's only CCE and CCA on that day. Yeah. So it's entirely up to the school because of the different profiles that they have of their students to plan it accordingly mm. in order to, if you like, bring out the best in their students. So now I learned this because it's very much dependent on the schools uh, themselves to decide. Yeah. But I mean, what I'm hearing now is just a lot of it is from the parents, like it's the parents' convenience or the parents' needs, right? Mm. Because I need to go to work, I don't need to go to work mm. and this and that. But I always wanted to approach this from the perspective of a child's development. Mm. Like what is what is the, the a good time for them? Right. right to wake up to have their meals on time to be able to get enough rest oh actually again there is a great variety of answers when we when mm. we did this and actually we have done some uh, experiments in the past whereby we uh, 
For example, there's a two separate issues. One is the quantity of sleep and one is the quality of sleep. Mm -hmm. From the quality of sleep perspective, some studies have shown that for teenagers, not just for not so much for the young, for teenagers, their biorhythm bio seems to shift a bit and sometimes they can benefit from a slightly different start time. And that's why if you look at our system, more of the upper secondary and some of the JCs are having quite varied start times compared to the primary school students. Mm. Now that's the quality of sleep. Then the other thing is the quantity of sleep, how much, how long they sleep. Uh, that actually is a discipline issue mm. because if you start later, does it mean that you sleep later? Mm. What is the total amount of time that you sleep? Mm. And that, I think the bigger challenges have to do with the device usage, I mean, electronic mm. device usage, mm. how they discipline themselves to do, uh, to go and get their work done and to sleep accordingly. And that again requires a certain discipline uh, and a partnership between the child and the parents. So again, there's a quite a different varieties of uh, a need according to the different uh, backgrounds of our students, even mm. by different age group, by different age profiles. Mm. What about uh, the meal times that we we're talking about? Well, the meal times it all depends. You see, in across our schools. I have seen parents who say, oh, I like to enjoy breakfast with my kids. Mm. But actually, on the other end of the spectrums, I have children coming to school very early and teachers turning up at 7 o'clock in order to give breakfast to the kids. Wow. Because not every kid uh, yeah. necessarily have breakfast. Some of it is because they wake up late and they don't want to have breakfast. Yeah. But there are also some families that actually, they don't make it a point to let their kids have breakfast. Mm. I've visited many of these schools where one of my usual question I ask the kids, primary school and secondary school, how many of you have breakfast before you come to school? And in some schools, some of them, I have to ask them, how many of you have breakfast, uh, sorry, have dinner last night? Well, there are some high-needs family that the children might not even have dinner. And we have to make sure that the yeah, children That's are, provided for. Uh, well, we can't provide for the dinner and the teachers have to check in with the students in the morning. Mm. I've been to one uh, secondary school in uh, Ishun. I, I popped by at 7 o'clock. The teachers were there providing free breakfast for many of the high-need students. Mm. No questions asked. You turn up, you just check off your name and you can go and have a breakfast. Mm. And these are all sponsored by Well Wishes, the canteen operators. Mm. Because we know that there's an entire spectrum of families out there. And that's why as a Minister for Education, when I hear the needs of uh, different parts of the spectrum of uh, families, I always tell myself that, you know, I don't think we can have a one-size-fits-all. Mm. And I don't think we should impose uh, our own family circumstances and project that onto uh, some other families. Mm. I mean, you'll be quite surprised that um, we have many high-needs family who may not be so conscious of, a regular diet, of the need for a regular diet mm. for their children. So some of these things we need to really work on it. Just now when you talk about, about the parents-teachers uh, meetings and uh, uh, there are also a spectrum of parents. There are some parents there who are very keen to come and talk to the teachers mm. about how their children can do better. And there are some parents whom we will try very hard to reach out to them mm. but they just don't have time mm. to turn up for the so-called parents-teachers meeting. Mm. And they'll be wondering like, why do you want to talk to me? Mm. And isn't it your job to look after my kid for me oh, and like do everything? The family yeah. structure has yeah. also changed yeah. along the way yeah. and uh, different families have different challenges and it's not so straightforward to say that just because we want to work the parents-teachers partnership that it will necessarily be so. Mm -hmm. In fact, some of the parents 
we'll find it very hard to reach out to them, not just from the school perspective, even working with the social workers yep. to reach out to them. So I think we just have to be careful when we advocate a certain policy to see whether to really test it and see whether it's applicable to uh, the broader spectrum of people mm. rather than just a, a certain niche mm. uh, a segment of the society. Mm. And someone also talked about the canteen nutrition line mm. and she had a suggestion of like, mm. why don't we do it the military style <laughs> where, you know, um, you, the, the, the children are all given their own trays and right. then you, you know, you, you, you just eat whatever is given to you. You learn to eat whatever is given to you. You learn to wash your own mm. trays and, mm. and put it away. Mm. And then so that you can also uh, cater to that, the, the balanced nutrition that they're having as mm. well as dietary uh, needs that different mm. children have. Because sometimes in the schools, they sell stuff that isn't necessarily healthy. So some parents have this concern, right? Mm. Kids have their own pocket money, they can just buy whatever they want. Well, it would be quite interesting to ask the parents and to ask the children as well whether they prefer the so-called standardized uh, military-style meal. No, I tell you, they would want to play because I, I face this with my own daughter, right? During recess time, she wants to play and she doesn't want to eat and she's already really, really skinny. Right. And we're just like, and, and then they had a like a doctor come for a health check recently right. and then they're just saying that, oh, she she's a little bit under. And then you're like, as a kid also, I mean, when I ask my friends around, they say, yeah, recess time, I will, I'll play. Like right. if I only have like half an hour to eat, I would choose play over eat, right? So then, then also there's this thing about why can't recess be a bit longer? And then yeah. you do it the military style where like it's st standard food, so to speak. <laughs> of course, variety lah, not every day the same thing, <laughs> right? And then, and then at least children, you know, learn to eat and uh, it is being provided for. Yeah. Uh, that's that's one of the suggestions. I thought it was very interesting. I never thought of it that way. Well, actually, there are a few perspectives that we should consider. Uh, first of all, I I'm very glad to hear that uh, people like military food and <laughs> military style food. <laughs> You're the military man. <laughs> Maybe you have something like because else to think about. When it. I was uh, in the military and uh, everybody was like, Come are on. you sure you, you want, want to eat the military <laughs> style food? I, I must share with you this joke. Uh, that It wasn't really a joke. You know, once upon a time, SETS uh, uh, merged with uh, SFI, Singapore Food Industry. Mm. So SETS used to provide the food for the airlines mm. and then uh, SFI used to provide the food for the military. Mm. So when they merged, then the question was asked, the soldiers panic, say, am I going to get the airline food with a small little portion? <laughs> and then the airline uh, people also got worried, am I going to get the military food? <laughs> actually, I don't know what military food is like. <laughs> uh, actually, I must say that they're pretty good. I and heard over the years, pretty uh, good. Yes. But it depends on who you ask, you see. Uh, if you ask some of those who have served in the military, uh, many years ago <laughs> and then they will tell you when I was your age <laughs> and then we didn't get this and not not then on the other hand if you ask some of the parents who perhaps have not served in the military it's like how can you serve this kind of food to my child mm. so you know just like when you say that oh why don't we have this military style we've got this centralized kitchen and then just serve them what it is and I'm not sure whether what the parents would think of this because some parents were like oh very good very good and just, just feed them with whatever you, mm -hmm. you give them whereas other parents are like E, how can you serve my yeah. kid this kind of food? I know, right? I mean, it, it definitely isn't something that is a one-size-fit-all. But then I guess we just, like for me personally, also sometimes yeah. like I'm concerned because my daughter likes ice cream, right? Yeah. And she's like, oh, now she has her own pocket money. She can buy her own food. Yeah. And if that's the only thing she's going to eat during recess, I'm going to be worried, you know? Yeah. And I also don't want to put the extra pressure on the teacher. Hey, can you can you keep an eye on the on my daughter and all that? So, so there's this struggle. I, and I guess, you know, the military food system... Yeah. Just eliminate la, this ah, but thing. But I, I would right? like to share with you another perspective. Is it just using your daughter's example, right? Uh. Actually, what is the skill set you like her to acquire as she grows up? Mm -hmm. Well, you can give her the standardized military food 
then you deprive her of the chance to make her choices Choice, yeah. and also to learn with the cons- to learn to live with the consequences of her choice. Mm. And I thought that's part of the growing up, which is you learn to buy your own food and you learn to uh, eat what you buy and then you know whether it tastes well or not and you know whether there are consequences. So it can actually be a teaching moment. Mm. But sometimes when we, if you like, uh, we over-provide and we get the result, the immediate result of what we want, mm. but there might be a longer-term consequence of them losing out something, of learning to live independently and learning to make choices and to live by the consequences of their choices. I do think this is a very important point that you raise because I, I, I never thought mm. of it that way. And I always feel like sometimes, you know, we, we want this for our child, yeah. obviously. We talk about, oh, we want them to learn their own lessons. We don't want to hold their hand all the right. way. But then sometimes, you know, we are making the decisions that go against that intent and what you're saying is a reminder actually for all of us that sometimes there are learning lessons that we can uh, moments that what we call teachable moments yes teachable moments you see uh, i i always uh, share this story with uh, some of my colleagues in uh, moe i say actually over time uh, as a society in singapore we have become more and more structured we have become more and more organized and sometimes we always wonder whether we even tolerate untidiness and uncertainties. Mm. We almost want to remove all uncertainties and untidiness from our lives and from the lives of our children. But you know, in this environment where it is so artificial that that you have no uncertainties and no untidiness, then how do our children grow up, you know, learning to live in a much more messy world where things may not work out exactly Mm. as they expected it to or they wanted to? But you know, some of these uncertainties and untidiness can actually be uh, teachable moments or learning moments for our, our our children. I think that's very true. Instead of trying to remove everything yes, from them. Yes, because the world is more and more uncertain, yeah. right? Like yeah. with COVID and all this that hit us and and we, we just, you know, we're not prepared for that because we've been so used to everything sort of yeah. being nice and, and, and systematic for us. Yeah. So it is a learning lesson for us. Uh, but I mean, we've talked a lot and uh, I mean, b- before I, we wrap up this, uh, this, uh, this interview, I think uh, one of the things that you are a huge advocate for is mental health. So I think mm. we need to talk about that. Like, like, how do you think we can all improve this for not just the students, but also mm. for the teachers and the parents? Well, I'd like to share a few perspectives on how we look at mental health. Um, the first perspective is, is that sometimes we, we look at mental health as if it's a disease, you know. Mm. It's a black and white uh, kind of a situation. But actually, mental health is just a spectrum. Mm. And I look, like to look at it as a, almost like a physical fitness issue. Sometimes we feel better, sometimes we don't feel as well. Yep. Uh, when we feel better, doesn't mean that we will never feel down. Mm. When we don't feel as well, doesn't mean that you stay with us forever. So it means that actually most of us, if not all of us, are moving somewhere between the ex- two extremes of perfectly okay and perfectly not okay. And we, the other thing is that we know that in life there will be ups and downs. And we need to help our people to learn to live and deal with the ups and downs. Mm. So that's one perspective that I think is important to remember so that it's no longer a stigma to say that today I'm not feeling so well, today I need some help to cope with this kind of things. Because really, the only easy day was yesterday. (laughs) Seriously, we all went through that and then we come out a bit stronger when we have the chance to find our way through it all. So that's one perspective. The other thing about mental health is that I think a lot of time we focus on the remediation, how to help people when they have 
this problem or that problem. Mm. But actually, we need to spend a lot more effort upstream, upfront, giving our people the chance to develop that resilience, mm. helping them to find their own footing so that the problem don't become so big and so intractable. And so a bit of prevention, a bit of upstream, um, if you like, exercise to prevent ourselves getting into those downstream problems is as important as doing remediation. Mm -hmm. But having said that, I think whether it's teachers, parents or students, we will all have moments whereby we are down and we need help. And we want to send a message that it's not wrong to go and uh, look for help. And you can be assured that there will be people who who can help us. Mm. And where are these people that can help us? It's not about the clinical psychologists, the professional counsellors. In fact, many a times, the people that can provide us with the help are the people around us, which is why we want to equip our students with the ability to cope at the individual level. Mm. Number two, we want to equip our students to help their peers to cope because there's a, this magic trick. When you feel that you can help someone, you actually feel more confident mm. about yourself you begin to understand what are the symptoms and signs to look out for. So we want to have this peer support network in our schools. And it can go through all different ages because different people have different capacities to help. Then the third thing is that most of us don't look for the counsellors when we are in, in, in need of help. In fact, we go to what we call the trusted person. It could be a trusted peer, it could be a trusted adult, it could be a trusted teacher. And that is why we also want to equip our parents our teachers with some basic uh, level of uh, mental health awareness so that they know what to do when someone asks them for help. Mm -hmm. Before we refer the more serious cases, we triage the more serious cases to the clinical psychologist. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we want to help our peer support group understand and the parent support group understand is this. Very often, I think we are in a solutioning mode. When someone tells us their problem, we want to solve the problem for mm. them. I learned one thing from Dr. Maliki, who used to be a social worker, is that the job of the social worker is not to solve everyone's, everyone's problem. The job of the social worker is to help the person who's facing the problem to develop those muscles, those competencies to overcome the problem themselves so that in time to come, they feel more confident to be able to deal with it themselves. Mm. So these are the things that we want to equip our people. Awareness, okay? Making sure that you know that it is not a black and white issue. All of us may need help and all of us will need help sometime in our different points in life. Number two, all of us can provide help to someone in need. And it need not about taking over all the problems and solving it for them. That is probably a bit too much. But all of us can provide a listening ear to help just to assure that person that you are not alone in this. And all of us also can help point people who are in need of help to the real professionals who might be able to provide them with a higher level of help, whether it's the clinical psychologists or the professional counsellors. So this is how, as a system, we want to build that circle of support, if you like, to assure people that when you are facing this, you are not doing this alone, and there will always be people who can provide help. And we ourselves, regardless of our station in life, can also stretch out their hand to provide the helping hand. I mean, the way I look at it, it's not like, um, it, it doesn't work in solitary, you know, yes. like mental health, because you talk about, mm. you know, 
we, you, you know, we, what, what we've done in this uh, session also, mm. we've talked about like redefining success, right? Mm. You talked about it's just about building resilience and mm. it's not about competition. And then when you are able to redefine success, therefore you're mm. also able to mm. understand what is important, right? Yeah. It's not about the grades, it's not about academic. And then with that also comes less pressure to perform and to, mm. and to do. And because there's less pressure to perform, you have more room to to think about other people, to think mm. about what's around you, what's meaningful in your mm. life and to show care mm. to, to the ones around you rather than, you know, have someone who is, you know, depressed, you know, could be in the same classroom with you and you don't even know that mm. this person has been depressed. And I guess that's what happened with mm. um, the, uh, the River Valley High incident. Mm. So it, 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 I think it's a whole ecosystem. Yes, so there are a lot of perspect useful perspectives that I think we have <clears throat> discussed. So if, like you say, first thing, Trying to surpass ourselves throughout life is perhaps more important than trying to surpass someone else in an exam. Mm. Because it's at that lifelong attitude that I'm not competing with people. Mm. I'm just trying to be a better version of myself. Mm. Right? Today, if I try and I don't make it to my expectations, I'll try again tomorrow. And I've never really failed until I stop trying. So I always encourage our people to remember this. Uh, and, and this, what is this version? This right. better version of yourself. Yes. So you set yourself a certain goal and then you just say that, okay, if I set myself a certain goal, I will have a, if I like, a, a plan, a timeline to try and keep taking those tiny baby steps towards that goal. Mm. I may not reach it overnight and I probably should not reach it overnight because if that's the case, then maybe I set too low a goal for myself. But it's okay, we develop it in phases. So it's trying to surpass ourselves rather than to just surpass other people. Mm. So there's one important perspective. Because if our perspective is a constant and incessant comparison with other people, then we will always feel very miserable because there will always be someone who is doing better than us and we will be, never be satisfied. Mm. So it's just like in sports, you know. People say that, oh, I'm happy only if I win. But you know, actually in sports, most of the time we lose because there's only going to be one champion in all the yeah. events, right? But that doesn't mean that the rest of the 99 who participated in the event are all failures. But so long as they have done better than themselves, they have really performed better than what they expected themselves to do even on that day. I think that is a little success that we can celebrate. Mm. So it's through taking these tiny baby steps, if you like, that we can be more confident of ourselves. Now, the other thing that I think is very important to remember is that no matter how down we are, we can always stretch out and provide a helping hand with some, to somebody else. And this is what, again, my grandmother always uh, uh, reminded us when we were young. He says that you might think that you are in need, but look around you. There will be people who are in greater need. And even if we are in need, even if we are poor and not so well off, we can still extend a helping hand to someone else who is in greater need. And I thought that that was a very important thing because sometimes it removes us from feeling helpless just because we think we are in need. But to know that someone else is in greater need and we ourselves can be that change agent, that catalyst to help someone else is actually very uplifting. Yes. And then we free ourselves from just looking at our own problems and get so wrapped up in this and that I'm the most miserable person on earth kind of uh, feeling. Whereas we know that actually when I can uplift somebody, when I can be a positive testimony to somebody, then I think it kind of brings us to a different level of being able to contribute rather than to just what I call trying to find the perfect environment for ourselves. But we are in control when we feel that we can give meaning rather than we are just trying to find meaning. Yes. Okay. So uh, I know I've taken up a lot of your time, but then some mm. parents will probably want some tips mm. on P1 prep. Like what 
are like some tips that you have for them? Okay, I only got one tip. Mm. Choose a school for your child that can bring out the best in your child according to his or her ability. Don't choose a school because someone else is choosing it. Mm. Because every school has different character. Every school have a different uh, environment. And what we need to do as parents is to ask ourselves, which is the environment that best bring out uh, or that can bring out the best in our child. I'll share very frankly that you know some I've seen as a member of parliament where I see my constituents as a fellow parent, I have seen people who tried very hard to get their children into some popular school. And within two years, they have to drop out from the school mm. because the child cannot take the pressure. The parents cannot take the pressure. And then they find themselves that, why do I do go through this? Why am I in this environment whereby my child cannot learn at a pace that's comfortable to them? Mm. So I think it's very important for us to understand the strengths and weaknesses of our children and then find them an environment that best promotes it. Uh, promotes their strength. Mm. Some children are very competitive. They go to a school where they start off at the bottom of the school, they will work their way out. Mm. Good for them. Some children, even from my own family experience, are not so competitive. They would like to go to an environment whereby it's more collegial and they work in teams and they try to uh, affirm one another and bring out the best. Mm. And, then, and so be it. So different children thrive in different environments and we shouldn't think that there is this perfect and good environment that is for our child and no other environment is suitable for them. So at this point, they would have probably already gotten their postings mm. and for those parents who may be disappointed with their, mm. um, their the, the posting results, what, what advice have you got? Uh, well, I came from McPherson Primary School. It's not a famous school. I think my school gave me the chance to be who I am mm. and I never begrudge my school for not being a popular school. Uh, today the school is closed down already <laughs> okay but i think i'm very proud of my macpherson primary school mm. but i think every school environment allows the child to develop in different ways what i enjoy about macpherson primary school my teachers trusted me they gave me the opportunities to serve to be a librarian <laughs> to be a prefect <laughs> uh, to be in charge of the ava uh, the av system and all these are little you opportunities. You sound like a nerd I... when you're like in school. <laughs> my goodness. No, but it's true. It's, it, you're, it's you're probably the one that everybody wants to tekan because it's like <laughs> too like well behaved and like you know. Well, I I was the class monitor, so I have to take care of the rest of the class, and uh, it has been <laughs> it's been drummed into me that you know from young, you have to take care of uh, other people. Mm. And my primary school always uh, my my form teachers at least always have this uh, uh way of a. Uh, making us sit in a classroom. If you are good in a certain subject, you sit with the person who is not good in that subject. Mm. And it's your responsibility to help the person who is not so good. Mm. And, and for different subject combinations, you will, you will always do that. Mm. So this is how I think, whether is it a popular school or not a popular school, I think we all picked up important life skills. We picked up important values through all this uh, school environment. So it's not just about academics and I'm just trying to uh, get a perfect score for my uh, PSLE or what other exams it might be. But mm. it is all these life skills, all these values that I think we picked up that is most important for us. Mm. And I mean, as parents, I mean, by the time our children are 30 years old, 40 years old, I don't think we ask them about what's your PSLE score, right? Mm. But what we can see is you know, the kind of values that they have uh, learned and they 
go on in life to pass on those positive values to their children in turn. So mm. I think that's what makes us happy, right? And I, I remember my, my primary school days to be quite happy as well. Mm. And I mean, I can understand the parents who may be disappointed because yeah. obviously they have certain expectations um, and they also probably have certain ideals or beliefs about mm. the school that they chose. Yes. And that's why when they didn't get it, they are disappointed. Mm. Uh, I, I would say, you know, give, 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 I think give the school that you're posted to a chance. Yes, right? I would say so. I would say so because, I know in Singapore, <coughs> our school system is such that the teachers get rostered to the different school, mm. uh, the principals get to roster different school, the teachers, and par- uh, the teachers and the principals also have access to the same resources and they also share the different ideas. Mm. So in fact, you know, in the MOE, we have this portal, uh, a resource portal whereby different teachers, different principals put their best ideas for other par- uh, other teachers and principals to look at and mm. see what suits them and what they can adapt for their own uh, uh, children. Mm. So I think different schools have different strengths and the most important thing is to allow our children to experience uh, that kind of diversity and to find their own footing in, in this rather mm. than to shoehorn them into a certain mode and say that, oh, this particular school is very popular and therefore it must be the best school for mm. my my kids. It might be a very popular school for various different reasons that might not be suitable for your kids, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So I, I do, I do uh, kind of get that uh, from you. Yeah. Uh, actually, personally, you are very much for like, you know, grooming children in terms of their character and then internally, mm. not so much about grades. Uh, but sometimes, you know, your position as a minister mm. um, can be a little bit tricky because when you say certain things, right, it's like, are you saying it because you are coming from the perspective of a father or a parent or like, you know, whether it's from a minister? So I'm just going to make it very clear now with this. I know there's so much I want to talk about, but, you know, the challenges as a parent. So now it's as a parent, okay? Not as a minister, but as a parent, like, you know, what were some of the, like, toughest challenges that you faced? Well, as my uh, children were growing up and as now they, as they continue to work uh, and grow up, I always only ask them for two things. Mm. I always ask them to be disciplined and to be determined because I come from the background that I'm not the most talented person on earth I'm just the average Joe and I believe that well the average Joe with a good system with discipline and determination you can achieve above average results I won't even say that I achieve the best results whether it's in school or in the military but I always tell my soldiers that no I'm just like you and I'm prepared to try and if I'm prepared to try then you try together with me but it is about discipline and determination. It is not because I'm born more talented than uh, others. I'm quite sure I have many f- friends uh, who are much more talented than me. But I think we all, all go through life understanding that it is not just about talent. It is also about your discipline and determination. And that's the two things that I wanted to teach my kids to have, uh, regardless of their stations in life. I have three kids and all of them are different in their different ways and, and they all have a different strengths, different weaknesses and different needs altogether. So I don't think we want to shoehorn them in the same way uh, for everything that they do. Okay, I think that's very good advice for all of us. And with that, we have come to the end of this episode. It's the season finale. And it's such a pleasure having you, Minister Chan. Thank you. I have to say that, um, yeah, I, 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 I feel more assured now after talking to you. And I... 
I started this thinking that you know there are probably some things that you you you've you've know you, you know and you've tried as a minister for the, for for the and not just you like I mean for the whole Ministry of Education that we are not aware of. And so hopefully this conversation has also shed some light for my listeners and that they will be able to understand a little bit better why certain things are done a certain way. And in fact, it's not, um, it's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily represent the whole overarching uh, sort of stand, but because it's so individual and personalised at that point. So it could, different people could be facing different challenges because all their kids are all in different schools. We've come to the season finale of What Do I Know with me, Joanne Pei. If you enjoy this conversation with Minister Chan, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends because that will help us get discovered. A video version of this podcast is available on my YouTube channel, Too Happy Media, where you'll also find some fun bonus content with my guest speakers. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Joanne Pei and I'll be back soon. Bye! This was a Zoda Pop podcast.